if Matthew's gospel were a stage play, which is pretty close to how it was kept alive and performed before it eventually got written down, this passage would come shortly after intermission. What I mean is that scholars divide the Gospel of Matthew into two chunks, and this happens shortly after that division. And so while we've been watching the various actors on stage, there comes this break. And so maybe we stretch our legs, run to the restroom, grab a box of junior mints or a glass of wine, and then we settle back into our seats for the second half. And what we see on the stage in the second half is almost identical to what we saw in the first half. Jesus healing and feeding people. Because that's what he does. That's the very essence of Jesus. He heals people and he feeds people. Well, and he teaches. And that teaching comes in two forms. Sometimes he does all the talking. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. He just talks and talks and talks, kind of like I am right now, and nobody else gets a word in. But the other way he teaches is at the end of a little narrative encounter, there'll just be this one little line or two, and it's what's called a correction story. You have this narrative, and then at the end, boom, here it is, kind of the moral of the story. Like, for instance, just a scene or two previous to this, Jesus has an encounter with the religious leaders, and they ask him, how come your disciples don't observe the ceremonial hand-washing before eating the bread? And you should hear a correction coming because Jesus says, red letters, you know, it's not really what goes into a person's mouth that you have to worry about the dirt. It's the words that come out which reflects their hearts. Ouch. That's a correction story. Correction stories are like attending Catholic school and being slapped on the wrist by a nun. They, they sting a little bit. They ouch a little bit. So it's not surprising, as you slip another junior mint into your mouth, that on the stage here is another correction story, centered around healing. On the stage, of course, it's Jesus. His disciples are around him and this woman. This is one very strong woman. She's a Canaanite, the mortal enemies of the Jews, but she is desperate. The Greek kind of implies that she is shrieking and repeatedly shrieking. She wants her daughter to be healed. I kind of kept picturing Meryl Streep for the part, because she can do anything. And then I thought, no, how about a mother from Puerto Rico who is desperate for water and meds for her children. And then I thought about this girl that I met years ago. I didn't really meet her per se, but I was preaching at an inner city church, and during the children's sermon, which I was not doing, the kids came forward, mostly small kids, you know, the, the normal kind, but then there was this fourth grade girl, and she was holding sway. It was obvious that it was her court. And, and the person doing the children's sermon said, she read this line from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, we're of more value than sparrows. And the girl said, nuh-uh, we're equal. She took on Jesus, right? And so the lady doing it said, well, she resorted to bad theology, but, but we have souls. And the girl said, birds have souls. 
And that's when the teacher said, okay, let's be quiet and listen to the lesson, you know, let's just stay in our place, that kind of thing. I think that girl could play this part. Don't you? She has this incredible challenge. The disciples, of course, have a lot to learn in this story because that's how correction stories work, right? There's something to be taken away. You you heard their line, right? Lord, she keeps shouting after us. Send her away. Can't you get rid of her? There, There were two strikes at least against her. One, she's a woman. And two, she's a Gentile, not just a Gentile, but a Canaanite, which of course just instantly brings up divisions. And in our day, they continue. Gender, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, and of course, race. I read a great story by uh, Maya Angelou who, uh, you know, she passed away a couple years ago, a great poet, and she was at a conference for Episcopal clergy. They were on some kind of retreat, and during a Q&A session, one of them said, uh, Miss Angela, do you, do you see any signs of hope and healing, you know, w- with regard to race? And she said, well, you know, it's a mixed bag. I mean, you see some progress, and then you see setbacks. And then she told a story. Many years ago, she was in the San Francisco area. She was doing something for the local public television about African art and this one kind of statue in particular that she was fond of. And this gentleman who was watching called up and said, I'm actually a collector of these statues, an older white gentleman. And, And they got together and they hit it off and he and his wife hosted her many times, if you can imagine getting to host Maya Angelou. And they had just this great relationship whenever she was in the Bay Area. But, you know, time went by and they just lost touch. Five years later, she was there in San Francisco. She called him up. They just instantly were back to where they were. She told about the writing projects she was working on. What, what have you been up to? And he said, well, I've been working with the military over in Europe and, and, and about race. And, you know, the black troops, they're having a very hard time of it. And, and our boys, too. And she said, what? What did you say? And he repeated himself. You know, the black troops and our boys. And she said, what did you say? And then he heard it. Us and them. And he was so embarrassed that on the telephone he said, oh my God, I can't believe I said that. And to you, of all people, I am so, I'm going to hang up. I'm just going to hang up. She said, no, you're not. This is when we need to talk. And they talked. And she said, and we need to get together. And they never did. He never returned her calls. And they never met up. There's a little bit of progress, but a lot of setbacks. And in this gospel lesson, our divisions are challenged. And not just ours, but apparently, are you ready for this? Jesus's. You did catch that, right? I mean, I I couldn't exactly slip it by you. She cries out. He says nothing. Eventually, he says, I was only sent to the Jews, you know, and then after that implies, if not calls her a dog. You know, if if the kids have bread on the table, why should we care about the dog? But she persists. 
and she wins. Now, I don't know how you feel about Jesus being challenged. You know, some people picture Jesus as a, as a toddler playing in the mud, but all the while in his mind, he can't wait until he walks on water and heals people. But others say, well, do you, do you really think he knew who he was at that point? And some have suggested that it's at his baptism and as he grows into the faith that he tries to figure this thing out and maybe that the mission to the Jews is too small. This much I know. After this event, everything that Jesus did in the first half, he does again, except in the first half, it was to Jews. When he feeds the multitude, it was Jews. And now, in the second half, it's Gentiles. And the last thing Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew is to go and make disciples. Go make followers of all the nations. You could translate that all the people groups. The reach, it goes out further. We all know, we can't avoid it, that there is blatant racism and other isms in our day. It's blatant. But I suspect that in a congregation like ours, it's the more subtle forms that sneak up on us. You, you may remember Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, sociologist, he says, you know, we have this incredible ability as humans that we can just figure out problems without even thinking. We just have this intuitive ability, but the downside is we also have this thinking without thinking about the other. And Gladwell, who's half black, was shocked to find out even the racism in himself. And I wonder how much of it is part of our journey maybe even our religious heritage. In the Roman Catholic Church of my childhood in Houston, Texas, you can rest assured that the Jesus on that crucifix was white. And every adult in my life was white. And when we moved in the fifth grade to the suburbs, I was told it was for good schools. And I thought, oh, yes, yes. Never mind the fact there were no blacks in that, in that town. And when my dad would come home from work, it was always the Mexicans this and the blacks, although he used an N-word, that. That was in the air I breathed. And maybe it was for you as well. But I think a spiritual revolution is underway. It's just very, very small. It happens in little ways. I see it in my children's generation where some of those lines have faded. Not entirely, but they've faded. Angelou tried to get a hold of that guy and he never answered. So she told all these Episcopal clergy, she told them the story. I said, no, we, this is when we need to get together. And he never showed up and he never returned her calls. And as she finished telling that story to all the clergy, this gentleman in the back stood up, cleared his voice, throat, and said, I'm here. That was me. And everybody got wide-eyed. Oh, my God, he's here. And he came down, and she came down, and they were reunited, and they embraced, and they cried, and everybody in the place cried. There are little signs every once in a while just peeking through the clouds 
I don't, I don't know what you think about the idea of Jesus having his worldview enlarged. But it's not really the point. The point is, will we let ours be enlarged? You know, like in Act 3, what will be our lines? How will we play the part? 